Good morning, celebration. You know, a couple of weeks ago, not too long ago, Dan was asked to preach with only a couple hours notice, and I remember sitting on the second row thinking to myself, I am so glad that I'm not Dan. Sure enough, God has a sense of humor. Not only does he have a sense of humor, I think I may be going through church discipline right now, or discipline from him, because this past week my wife and I celebrated our nine years of being married, and so this weekend we had plans, the kids are gone, we were going to just spend the weekend just enjoying one another, being quiet, and I'm not going to lie, we were not going to be here this morning, so God said, not only are you going to go to church, but you're going to preach, brother, so... Hour and a half of notice, be gracious to me, Celebration Baptist Church. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. And if you would please stand in the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 10, Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Let's pray. Father God, I am in need of you this morning. God, all the more I pray that you would get me out of the way and that your spirit would move in this church, God, through the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The message, this sermon this morning, is discovering joy and contentment. And just before I even begin, I have to let you know, I'm in need of this sermon just as much as you. I haven't got it all figured out. I'm not completely learned in this subject. It's something that I'm continue to, continuing to grow in every single day. So know that. This isn't just me saying this is how you need to be like me. Know that I'm working through this as well. For many, the Western understanding of Christianity is derived of a health and wealth understanding. It's a gospel that is referred to as the prosperity gospel. Now, this type of thinking in this gospel, God seeks to provide people with health and wealth and physical blessings. So in order for one to become prosperous, all one has to really do is believe and receive and act upon God's promises. Now, in this type of understanding, God is nothing more than a vending machine. If we continue to have faith in God, then surely, the understanding is, blessings will pop out. So that could be in the form of money, a nice car. It could be in the form of the perfect job, the perfect spouse. Whatever it may be, at the end of the day, God's primary desire for your life is to be happy. And most of all, it's happy with the physical blessings. Anyone who reads the Bible, anyone who reads the very first book of the Bible, can tell you that this is just simply not true. That the God of the prosperity gospel is nothing more than a figment of one's own imagination. But so many times we long for this God to exist. So many times, even as mature believers, we long for this God to exist. So the understanding for the believer, and even myself can be, if I just pray enough, 
If I just go to church enough, then surely goodness will always come to me. Surely my circumstances will always be good. Surely there will not be anything bad that will happen in my life. For me, especially when I was going to school, the understanding was I'm going to school full time, I'm working full time, I'm raising my family, I'm trying to lead them before the Lord. If that's the case, and I'm going in the family business, I'm preaching the gospel, surely then there will not be any type of bad circumstances. I'm exempt from these bad circumstances because of all of the things that I'm doing. This happens all the time in people's lives, and people long, again, for this prosperity gospel to be true. But when we come to the book of Philippians, when we come to Philippians chapter 4, we see an understanding of God and the gospel that is totally different than what the prosperity gospel teaches. You see, as Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, he's writing while he's imprisoned in Rome. So he's imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing to this church that he holds very dear to his heart. And we first hear about the church of Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Now, many of you know the stories while he's there in Macedonia. It's basically Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They go there after seeing a vision of a Macedonian man crying out for help. And as they're traveling through and going to Philippi, they come across a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. Now, they preach the gospel to her, and Lydia professes faith. Not only does she profess faith, but her family professes faith. So she is baptized, and they go about their way, continuing preaching the gospel. The next situation we have is this woman who is apparently indwelt by an evil spirit, and she can apparently predict the future. So there's people who are gaining much money from what she's doing, and the spirit that's working through her begins to recognize who Paul and Silas and Timothy are and shouts out, these men are of God. And what turned into a form of flattery at the beginning eventually turns into an annoying situation, so much so that Paul just says, I rebuke you and cast the spirit out. Now what happens? The people who are making money off of her are enraged because there goes their their finances, right? There goes all of their earnings that they had from this woman. So they beat him. They beat Silas. They throw both of them in prison. So much for the prosperity gospel. Preaching the gospel, people are being saved, and yet they're thrown in prison. What happens next? It says that they are chained to the walls of the prison. But not, are they just being upset or crying out to God and saying, why would you do this? Instead, the people are, or Paul and Silas, are singing hymns. So they're singing to God in the midst of their horrible set of circumstances, and then an earthquake comes. An earthquake erupts, the very foundation of the prison is shaken, and the prison cell doors fling open. Now, of course, as the jailer sees this, and he knows that the prisoners are going to escape, what's going to happen to the jailer? He's going to be killed. His head's going to roll. So instead of that happening, he decides, okay, I'm going to take my own life. But before he does, Silas and Paul shout out, we're still here. And moved by this, they share the gospel with this jailer, and he comes to faith. Not only does he come to faith, but his family comes to faith, and they're baptized. The church of Philippi would most assuredly consist of women like Lydia and this Philippian jailer. 
We see time and time again that Paul expresses his love for this church. This church is about the mission of God. They have aided him for many years in his missionary journeys. In chapter 1, he prays with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. In chapter 2, he rejoices with them that regardless of his circumstances, they continue to give him aid. They send him a man by the name of Epaphroditus to help him as he's preaching the gospel. And then in chapter 4, you discover that the church of Philippi is one of the only churches who continues supporting Paul even as he reaches Thessalonica. So like celebration in many ways, as they're sending people out and they're supporting many missionaries, Paul held the church of Philippi very dear to his heart. He loved this church. When you get to verses 10 through 13, we find that the ultimate source of Paul's contentment, the ultimate source of his joy is not necessarily found in the church of Philippi, and he wants to make this clear. And at this point in the reading, as he's, as he's writing this letter, we find that for whatever reason, there was a moment where the church was unable to support him. And look what he says then in verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So during that point, there at least appears to be some sort of gap in regards to their supporting him. Something happened. It could have been either Paul was in jail. It could have been that Paul was simply unreachable as he's going out into new parts of the world and preaching the gospel. They may have lacked sufficient funds. Whatever it was, when they sought the opportunity to continue in supporting him, they did so. So after this brief period, they begin doing it again. But Paul wants to make it very, very clear that while he expresses joy for this gift that he's received, Paul doesn't want the church to misinterpret what he's saying. He doesn't want the church to think that because he's received this gift, now he's happy. Now he's found joy. He not only wants them to see that, but he doesn't want them to think that the gift wasn't enough. But Paul says this in verse 11. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What we see in order to discover joy and contentment is that one cannot be governed by his or her circumstances. If you notice the language that's used here in verses 11 through 12, two different times Paul says, I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content. You see, in order to gain contentment, you must gain experience. And so many times as God is bringing about the plans in our lives, he brings us through experiences that are not only good, but are also bad. Bad circumstances, bad experiences, and he teaches us things through this. So let's think about Paul for a second. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee at the top of his game. Paul had a zeal for the law that was unlike any other. And when the church began to preach and the gospel began to spread, Paul took that as a threat. Not because he was simply being a jerk to Christians. Paul felt like what they were doing was against what God had planned for Judaism, for Israel. But of course, we know what happens when he reaches Damascus or as he's heading towards Damascus. We see that Christ comes, this blinding light appears and he's blinded and he hears Christ and he discovers that he's doing the very thing that God would not have him do. 
And so Paul professes faith. Paul comes to faith in Christ and he becomes a missionary, not only to the Jews, but to Gentiles, unclean people that they would have never associated with. These are the people that he, are, he is, is ministering to and he's preaching to. But when we think about his circumstances, in light of all those things that happened, we would think, and Hollywood would portray this person who suffered and now he's preaching and he's radically changed, that all these great things would happen. But if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 23 down to 29. About halfway through verse 23, Paul says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? These are the circumstances of Paul. We know that he experienced great joy and, and large amounts of success as churches are being planted, but it seemed like every time he would preach the gospel and people would come, all of a sudden there would be this great sense of hostility that arose from others in the communities. So all of these different things took place in the life of Paul. And yet when you get to Philippians 4, he says, I have learned to be content. In all of these circumstances, I have learned to be content. The Greek word for content was used very commonly in Greek philosophy. It was a term that was often used by Stoics. Stoics believed that contentment was their highest achievement. That's what they would try to seek contentment. And what you would do is you would become independent of all things. So you would basically empty yourself of all desires. So if something happened in your life, you were numb to it. You had no desire. It didn't bother you. You were content. When it came to, say for instance, a death of someone else, you were numb to it. You were content. And yet so many times, whenever you hear preachers preach on the issue of contentment, so many times as you're listening to the preacher, you think that that's what he's talking about. That when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to living in hard circumstances, that you should simply be numb to the pain, that you should rid yourself of all desires. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the gospel teaches. We see throughout scripture Paul expressing many emotions for the church. We see Paul crying out for the church in 2 Corinthians 12, we see Paul pleading with God to remove this thorn that's in his flesh. In James 5, there's an emphasis on the leaders, the elders coming together and praying and ministering to the sick. 
We see prophets feeling inadequate, disciples finding discouragement, and even Jesus Christ himself, as he is in the garden, before he is to be crucified, we see him in agony, crying out and praying to the Lord, please remove this cup from me, right? Nevertheless, your will be done. Finding joy and contentment does not consist of being numb to pain. Finding joy and contentment is not allowing those circumstances to determine who you are. That is what's so important. And yet, so many times when it feels as if the trials and the struggles are too hard to bear, that's when we get upset and we long for God to rid those circumstances and we oftentimes long for this prosperity God to show up instead. Look at verse 13. And I'm kind of paraphrasing this here. Paul says, I have learned to be content and satisfied no matter the condition. Why? Here it is. I can do all of this because of Him, that is Jesus Christ, who gives me the strength. Why is that? Because those who trust in Christ belong to Him. Those who trust in Christ have experienced true joy, true satisfaction, Philippians 4.13 is one of the most quoted Bible verses, especially among athletes. We see it all over the place, right? So basically the idea is, I have the ability to throw the football down the field because of Christ who gives me the strength. Or I have the ability, you know, your your mom is prepping you up to to study for this test, and I have the ability to pass this test because of Philippians 4.13. I can do all of this through Christ who gives me the strength. Or... I've worked hard and for many years at my job, so I will get this promotion because of Christ who gives me the strength. The question is, is this what Paul is referring to? Is this what Paul means? In order to be a good student of the Bible, check this out, you don't have to have a degree. You just have to pay attention to the context surrounding a verse. So the verses preceding a verse and the verses following a verse is extremely important. If you isolate one verse and you allow that to become the foundation of your theology or your doctrine, you are on very dangerous ground. So look at the verses. Look at 11 and 12. He says, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. And I can do all of this because of Christ who gives me the strength. I can do it because of Christ. So to bring this then to the modern day audience, to make this makes sense, is this. In light of Philippians 4.13, if I throw the ball only to find that it's intercepted by the other team, I can still find joy and satisfaction because of Christ who gives me the strength. If I study for the test and discover that I studied for the wrong thing that happened to me and flunk the test, I can still find joy and satisfaction and contentment because of Christ who gives me the strength. If I work many years at this job only to find some punk kid with a new degree who has no experience get the promotion, I can still find joy because of Christ who gives me the strength. Do you see that? That's what Philippians 4.13 means. Because so many times we allow all of those circumstances and all of those things in our lives to become our identity. But I think about it in my own life. I think about this in my family's lives. Whenever my wife was pregnant with our second child, I remember we went to Disney World and we wanted to spend some time with our son Elijah, especially before we, you know, she gave birth to our 
second child, and I remember her saying, something just doesn't feel right. Something's up. And so whenever we left, we went back to Louisville and went to the doctor, and they laid her on the table and discovered through, we see the sonogram, and there's our baby. But as we see our baby, we discover from the nurse that there's no heartbeat. And so I remember my wife seeing this, and I'm seeing it, you know, we're staring at our child, and she starts to cry, and I start to cry, and I remember it was very quiet, and we got up after the doctor talked with us and went back to the car, and it was very quiet, and what do you say? It doesn't matter what degree you have, it doesn't matter all the brilliant catchphrases that you can give in those type of moments, what do you do? And I remember us going home, and I remember seeing my wife praying. And I remember her coming to me and saying, I don't know why this happened. I don't understand it. I don't know why God allowed it to take place. But I can find peace because of Christ. Friends, she didn't do that on her own. She didn't find that sort of contentment in the midst of a very dark set of circumstances on her own. She did that because of Christ who gives her the strength. I don't know how people that go through these type of circumstances can do it apart from Christ. She had the strength. You see, for the Stoic philosopher, contentment was a human achievement. But for the believer, contentment is a divine gift. It is given to you by Christ. You have the ability to find yourself Content and satisfied. As John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him because of Christ. You're able to do it. You're able to not be governed by all of your circumstances. The thing about 2 Corinthians 12, as Paul pleaded with Christ to remove this thorn in his flesh, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Listen to this. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's good. If you can throw a football down the field, praise God that he gave you the ability to do that. If you can pass tests, have a photographic memory, praise God that he gave you the ability to do that. If you excel in your job, if you are blessed tremendously, praise God that he gave you the ability to do those things. But when those things become your identity, when those things define who you are, that's where you're on dangerous ground. That's where it begins to get shaky. Those things cannot identify you. I can give so many different examples of this from my life. And I'll be honest with you, I've preached this sermon before. You only have an hour and a half. You blow off the dust of a sermon and you start preaching. But even in my one and a half hours of preparation, when you look at this, I see how God has worked in my life. So it goes like this. And this is so many times where I found myself. If I could just marry my wife, if I could just marry Brittany, things would be better. And things got a lot better. There's no doubt about it. But if I could just do that, things would be better. Which then turned into, if I could just get a bigger TV, I am not kidding you. Like if my wife could, just, if I could take an axe and 
just chop her armoire into a million pieces and get, instead of a 37-inch, because we can't fit anything bigger, a 60-inch, things would be better. Which then turned into, if I could just have a child, things would be better. Which then turned into, if we could just graduate from Baptist College. Which then turned into, if I could just move up to Louisville and go to Southern Seminary. Which then turned into, if I could just graduate from Louisville, from Southern Seminary, things would be better. Do you see how it keeps happening? How it's the cyclical pattern that never stops? And my situations are different from yours, but it happens to you all as well. You're not exempt from this. It's not just me, a seminary guy who has these experiences to share to you. So I think about now. I think about the past year. And I think about graduating from seminary with the mentality and the understanding that because I now have this degree, I'm going to get a position immediately. It's going to work out for me. And it doesn't. And I find myself frustrated, disappointed, heartbroken, which then leads to anger and resentment. So much so that I remember calling my dad first on the phone and saying, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to put out resumes. I don't want to go through the motions. I found myself comparing myself to others who were in it. And I remember him saying, you can't do that have to keep praying. You have to keep pressing onward. And because it was my dad, my dad always says that kind of stuff, right? You hear that kind of stuff all the time from certain people, so I kind of shrugged it off. He always encouraged me, though. But the person, for whatever reason, it was the way he said it, that changed me, that changed my understanding of this through, of course, Christ, was Pastor Mike. Because Pastor Mike invites me to breakfast and as he does with a big smile on his face, he says, brother, I love you, and a part of me wants to hug you, but the other part wants to chop your head off. Because you're not doing nothing. You're not doing anything. And the question was that he asked me, are you willing to serve Christ simply for a paycheck, or are you willing to serve him because you love him and you love his church? That, like a swift kick to the pants, that hurt. And that put it in proper perspective. Do I still have it all figured out? No. No. I'm still going through the process just like anyone else is. And you talk about finding peace and contentment. When you finally, when you see all those experiences that hurt and that you cried over and then you see this is what God is doing in my life to get me to where I'm at. For many of you, your identity could be found in your children. But what are you going to do the day that they leave? For many of you, your identity is found in your job. What are you going to do if you lose it? Or the day that you retire? For many of you, your identity is found in school, or the mentality is, if I could just move out of Nassau County, or if I could just move on the island, things would be better. But they won't. Find your contentment and your joy and your satisfaction in the only one who can give it. You see, it's not just about discovering joy and contentment. It's about discovering the one who provides the contentment. And I need Christ to give me my contentment and my satisfaction. For some of you, this season, I love Christmas. But for some of you, it could be 
a horrible time, you won't be able to celebrate it with a loved one or because of a broken relationship. The question is, what do you say? What can I tell you? I don't know. I may not have the answer for you, but I know who does. I know who gives you peace and who provides you joy. And my message to you, what I would urge you to do is to cling to Christ. Find that joy in Christ, in Christ alone. Every time I preach, it seems like I say a quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to have to do it again. The man was a brilliant preacher. Charles Spurgeon says this, Remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. Therefore, look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if you do that, Celebration Baptist, believer in Christ, if you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. What's keeping you from finding this joy and contentment? Find your satisfaction in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Father God, your word is alive, and it is piercing to the soul. I pray, God, that you would help people to see that their true joy is found in you and you alone. Father, we are thankful that your son decided to take on flesh when he did not have to and came to us and bore the cross and bore our sins. Father, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way it is a proclamation, it is an act of worship because of what Christ did. Lord God, I pray that you would just be with those who are here this morning, who are hurting. I pray, God, that you would show them of their value and their worth. I pray, God, that you would just give them peace. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, the altar is open at this time. You may just want to spend some time with God where you're at. Uh, where's your contentment found? Is it, is it found in Christ and Christ alone? I'll, I'll be here at the front if you want to talk or you need someone to pray with. I'm going to ask you to stand once you sing and once you uh, respond as God, God has you.